Good morning and uh, greetings from central Wisconsin. I think the more that I grow in my Christian life, the more excited I am to be able to find other churches that are, are living and believing and practicing the, the Word of God. And I just can't say how encouraged I am uh, to have driven three, four hours and be at a place that I can feel at home and feel like the, the Word of God is honored and lived out. And I just commend each one of you for that. I, I am, as I said, glad to be here. I, I come to you. My family's also here. My wife, Priscilla, who just special interest is a sister to Amanda Gingrich, who is connected here uh, through, through Ryan, uh, upcoming wedding in October, so a little trivia there. And uh, my wife and I have five children, uh, Brad, Alyssa, David, and then Aaron and Eric, twins. Um, Brad, our oldest, is five, and then we have five children, five years old and younger. So we're busy people, and uh, I, I mentioned to my wife, uh, I think it was yesterday, that sometimes when we try to mobilize for something like this, I feel a little bit like, Moses must have felt whenever he tried to move the children of Israel. I mean, obviously our scale is, is almost nothing compared to what he had to do, but uh, it does give me a heart for that work. I also felt at home uh, thus far and uh, especially appreciated the devotional on gardening. I grew up as a on a produce farm. My father had a 20-acre uh, commercial produce operation, and I we never had to deal with buckthorn, but uh, I can relate to the idea of cultivating versus weeding, and uh, yeah, it was just very interesting to, to hear that analogy to our Christian lives. I also come to you as a very imperfect vessel to bring the perfect Word of God. And I'm just um, humbled that came through in the devotional that the one who brings the Word needs to spend the week preparing their heart first, and then the Word flows through that. And I'm, I am sobered and humbled by that thought this morning. I'd like to read from Daniel chapter 1 today. My, my thoughts were... Um, Thank you for the, the water, whoever brought that. My thoughts were uh, very much down the line of what we've heard today uh, so far on faithfulness. I've titled this message, uh, Fidelity, actually, which is a word that we don't use a lot. We think of it probably more in the context of marriage. Uh, infidelity, maybe the, the opposite of fidelity, when someone's not faithful to their marriage partner, we call that infidelity. Fidelity is when you're the opposite of infidelity, faithful and loyal. And 
that's the, the word that comes to mind as I uh, read these, these verses in Daniel chapter 1. We'll read the chapter at this time. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had sent set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And all and in all manners matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers 
that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. For me, I don't know about you, but I, when I read the Old Testament, I first have to ask the question of where we're at in time. And in my mind, I kind of divide the, the Old Testament up into 500-year pieces, roughly. I mean, these are very rough, but if you take the flood at maybe 2500 B.C., Abraham at 2000 B.C., 500 years later, and then Moses, 1500 B.C., and you go another 500 years, you get to David at 1000 B.C., and then 500 B.C. would be the return of the Israelites from captivity. They went back to Jerusalem. And then, of course, zero is Jesus coming to, to earth. So in that timeline, this passage is about 600 B.C., 100 years or so before the, and of course this is 70 years actually, but before the return of the Israelites to captivity. And if you recall, if David is at 1000 B.C., and then it was Solomon and then Rehoboam, uh, and the kingdom split into the ten tribes of Israel and two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the, the tribe of Israel lasted about 300 years. They made it from 1000 to about 700 B.C. The tribe of Judah made it to about 610 B.C. when Josiah, he was the last real king of Judah. And after that point, there were four kings. After King Josiah, there were four kings of Judah over a 22 and a half year period. And that was a very, very dark time. Every king, each one of those four, ended in his 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 kingship ended in captivity or death. And Nebuchadnezzar, first it was the Egyptians, and then Nebuchadnezzar over that twenty two and a half year period just came constantly to Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, and took people captive. Daniel and his friends were actually one of the first people to go. It was three years into that 22 and a half year period where we have Daniel being taken by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And at the end of that 22 year period is when Zedekiah, he was the last king, um, at that time Nebuchadnezzar came in and obliterated in one final obliteration the city of Jerusalem. Burnt the temple down broke the walls down, and took everyone that wasn't killed, except for a few poor people, and they went to Babylon to join Daniel and his friends. So that's where we're at in history. The other question is that I ask myself, why are we at this place? What took Daniel and his friends to this new country of Babylon? And I just would ask you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36, 
for a few verses. Basically, in one word, the reason that the Jews got sent here was idolatry. And these are some sobering verses here. Second Chronicles chapter 36. It says in verse 11, and listen carefully to these words. I mean, these, are, these speak of the justice of God. Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Judah. He reigned eleven of those twenty-two and a half years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And then these two sobering verses. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. I mean, that truly is a downhill story, and that's the Daniel's experience is the result of this. And then I would add one other word that describes why the captivity took place. That word is Sabbath. If you move to verse 20 in this chapter, it says, And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the ones that lived, he carried away, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. And then get this verse. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. There is some quiet justice in those verses. Basically, what I get from that is that they were supposed to let the land rest every seven years. And basically, for 490 years, no one had done that. And so God said, you missed 70 Sabbaths. And it might have looked like I sort of winked at that for 500 years but you know what? In the end, that land is going to rest for 70 years. And that was how the captivity was, the length of the captivity was determined. That's how God figured out how long it was going to be until the, the Sabbaths were kept, whether man was faithful in doing it or not. And I'm just, I'm just uh, awed, I guess, at the, at the justice of God that he would 
that he would make sure that his word happens even if people don't do it. But anyhow, back to Daniel 1. That's the, the context in history. And these children, it calls them, four children, woke up in Babylon uh, 600 miles from home. They must have been old enough to know the law of God, so they were youth, possibly, youth at best. Um, and they, uh, they had some unique circumstances for captives. I mean, they were specially selected to be fed and educated for the king's uh, service. And I can imagine they got there and their circumstances probably seemed too good to be true in a way. I mean, here they were. They were going to serve in the king's court and, um, and they were going to have the king's meat and drink and really not bad for a captive. Um, but there was one small problem, and that was that the king's food did not pass God's smell test, I guess you could say. And so here they were. I don't know what the problem was, if it was offered to idols or if it was unclean, like it was pork or what the problem was, but whatever the problem was, Daniel was not going to eat it or drink it, and neither was his friends. And I'm just encouraged by verse 9. Here they are in this strange land, away from the temple, 600 miles from home, and here we still have God in the picture. It says, Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And they had this conversation agreed to a 10-day diet of vegetables and water. And then they would take whatever, if they didn't look good at the end of 10 days, they'd take the consequences. If they did, then they could go from there. And we know what happened. Um, and I, I didn't know if I should say this or not, but I know as a, as a, red meat eating German heritage person, I, you know, it makes you wonder a little bit if, was this a miracle from God or would this actually happen if we tried to reproduce it today? And uh, that's obviously a, you know, something that we have to, to try ourselves, I guess, to see. But at the end of the 10 days, they were fairer and fatter, better nourished than the other children. And at the end of three years, they were, or in that vicinity, they were ten times smarter than all of the other people in the, in the king's realm. And then before we move to a few practical points, I want to call your attention to one, to the last verse here, verse 21. It's a very small verse, but it says, And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Now, he continued in what? Uh, king Cyrus was the king that, that let them go at the end of the 70 years. Uh, so here we have Daniel at the beginning of captivity getting this job in the king's court. 
And then it says he continued for the next 67 years, or, you know, this reading between the lines, until the first year of King Cyrus. And, you know, does that mean that he continued in his job for 67 years? Does it mean that he continued in his faith? Or does it just mean that he continued to live? I don't know the answer to it. It's probably all three. It would appear that he, by the blessing of God, made it to the end of captivity and outlived his captors and the, the punishment that, that God had made on the people. And I'm just, I'm just awed when I think of how God took care of Daniel through all of these tough years. But I said I want to talk about fidelity today. And when I looked it up, uh, the dictionary describes fidelity as faithfulness to a person, cause, or belief demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. And then another definition is strict observance of promises. And like I said, we could use a word like loyalty. We could use a word like faithfulness to describe the same thing. But there's something about this word fidelity that is a little deeper than either of those two words. To me, it speaks of trustworthiness in all areas of life, even the little ones. And it speaks of trustworthiness even when nobody is looking in the dark. That's fidelity, down to the smallest detail. And I also think that it speaks of loyalty to one cause, not two. You cannot have fidelity to two causes. One is going to win. And I think that that's why fidelity is so hard, is because life rarely confronts us with one path, one good path. You know, where you say, the only thing I had to do was this one, my only option was to do one good thing. That rarely happens. There's multiple ways of going at life. Many forks in the road that we could take. Deep down inside, we all want to keep our promises. We all want to honor our parents we all want to do the laws of the land. We all want to be completely loyal to Jesus Christ. I think if I asked everyone here, we would say that is our goal. That's what we want to do. That's why we're here today, to be strengthened in that. But then the tests come, and it gets pretty practical. Maybe we're handed some music from a friend that we know is not allowed in our household. Or... Maybe we uh, are 10 minutes late for a meeting that's 50 miles away and you know we could make up the time by speeding. Maybe we find, I'm just talking little practical things here, maybe we find ourselves with a, this is where I'm at right now, with a septic system that doesn't quite comply with county regulations, you know? Or you scratch a vehicle in a parking lot. Nobody's around. You don't know who owns the vehicle. 
and you know, those are just some tests. They're endless. You could fill in the blanks of the many areas of life where, what do I do? What's the right path? And I would suggest today that our level of fidelity to God determines the choices that we will make in every one of those situations. And I would also add that I think as people, Christians and non-Christians alike, we admire fidelity. We really do. We want, we, and we hate the opposite, the quitters, the cheaters, the ones that aren't faithful. We despise that in people. But while we admire fidelity, our flesh craves to go the opposite direction. And usually, our impulse, when there's peer pressure, for example, it's to bow to that pressure. And when we're tempted, when we're late for a meeting, while we admire fidelity, we are tempted to speed, to get there on time. And when, while we admire fidelity, if we have an option to cover something up and, and, and just go on with life without dealing with it, that's the temptation, is to do that. And what I love about this passage today is that Daniel and his friends offer us a picture of a better way. And I am so encouraged as I look at their example. And I guess I would ask the question is, why does God demand fidelity? And that I'm not going to spend the time on why that is today. But it seems like God has a special place of of hatred or of despising people that are half-hearted and that are like 50% Christians, you know, kind of lukewarm, or 75% Christians. He has a special lack of respect for people in that boat. And that's why he, you know, that's why the children of Israel found themselves in Babylon is because God is a jealous God and they chose to go worship other gods. And so it, it comes down to God wanting 100% from us, and that's what Daniel and his friends gave in this passage. I want to finish up with a few points that I see in this passage. Uh, one is that fidelity begins with absolute commitment. And it says in, in verse 8 of this cha uh, chapter that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. So Daniel decided up front in this place that he was going to stay pure. And then there wasn't anything to decide after that. You know, he didn't get to the table with this pork and wine and say, what do I do now? No, when he got there, he knew that he wasn't going to eat it. It was pretty simple for him. He purposed in his heart, made an absolute commitment, and then just followed through. And I think for us, for me today, it's no different. Um, 
that I have chosen, you have chosen to bow down in front of the cross. And as we say in that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And that's what Daniel did. He left us that example. Fidelity begins with absolute commitment to Jesus Christ. The second point that I see here is that fidelity does not make excuses for unique circumstances. And I can think of, I, I literally thought of four reasons, maybe this proves how, how creative I am to try to get around what I should do, but I thought of four reasons that I think Daniel could have used to not, or just to go ahead and eat the meat, you know. One would have been the God is blessing us theory. You know, they're in a land, they're offered this opportunity, kings meet, drink. I mean, can that not be the hand of God? Let's just eat it and go, right? Number two, the uncharted waters theory. We've never lived away from the temple in a strange land. We don't even know what to do. What are the rules? The endangering somebody else's life theory. The prince of the eunuchs said, I'm fearful of my head. So he say, well, we wouldn't eat the meat, but for the sake of other people, we'll, we will uh, we'll eat it, you know. And then the fourth one I thought of is the not our fault theory. Why were they here? Obviously not because of their faith. They had a lot of faith. But... It was the unfaithfulness of their fathers. So, hey, we can't help it. I mean, God dished this to us, and we're going to eat meat. Uh, it's part of our punishment. You can probably think of more, of what you could come up with excuses as to why not to follow God in entirety. But when our fidelity is tested, we too will have many reasons why we don't have to go ahead and be faithful. And fidelity turns its head from every reason and walks on the narrow way. Fidelity does not make excuse for unique circumstances. The third thing I see here that I'm impressed with is that fidelity finds expression in every area of life. I mean... Daniel was forced to learn the language and the teaching of his captors. And I'd ask you the question, if you were captured by, let's just say, Muslim people, by ISIS, you know, that's in the news, and they said, okay, you're going to learn Arabic and you're going to learn the Quran, and, you know, how diligent would you be at that? You'd say, yes, we're going to thrive and be ten times better at Arabic than than the rest of the Muslims. Well, I, you know, that's what Daniel did and his friends. They were forced to learn the language, the tongue of the Chaldeans, and in their earthly duties became ten times better than the, than the people that they were forced to be like. They thrived. I would suggest that Daniel, to take it to our day, Daniel is the carpenter who faithfully goes to work every day 
and is proficient at his trade. Daniel is the mother who faithfully toils in the home day in and day out. Daniel's a student that works hard in school, learning their lessons. Literally, he was. Daniel's the father that takes time to, to uh, spend with his children and also balances that with earning bread for the family and getting his bills paid, just faithfully getting it done. The earthly pursuits that we talked about in Sunday school. Fidelity finds expression in every area of life. Number four is that fidelity doesn't take any chances. And I read this in uh, uh, Matthew Henry commentary. He suggested that why couldn't Daniel have done the thing of, like for supper every night, just kind of pick and choose. If it's ham, then, well, guys, we're going to just eat the peas, okay? We, we're Jews. We don't, we don't eat the ham. Um, you know, just kind of wing it, and then, and then, not. Uh, why the line in the sand? You know, we're not going to do anything. And that's the point that we can learn today. Fidelity doesn't take chances. And Matthew Henry suggested that they drew a line up front to take away that temptation. Didn't have to fight that battle every night for supper. It was just over. They had vegetables in front of them. Fidelity chooses its friends, its hobbies, its occupation, its convictions with care, drawing a line well inside of God's fence. We see that in the story today. Fidelity does not put itself in the position of Lot that every day his righteous soul was vexed as he saw the wickedness in the city that he had chosen to live in. And I don't want to just fly past this point because it's one that, that's kind of a burden to me a little bit. It is part of, if we think back, you know, this, I believe on your sign out here of this church, it said Prairie Mennonite. Is the word Mennonite on the sign? I believe so. It's part of, of our Mennonite practice has been to draw safe lines that today are under attack and being scoffed at. I, I see it. I see it around. There's, there's sort of this mentality creeping in that, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is my relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, and everything else, if we just keep our eyes off of the, of the rules of man and our Mennonite heritage and tradition, you know, it's all, it's all unnecessary. It's holding us back. And I think that we do well to consider that in the long haul, history has not been kind to those who don't see the value of drawing lines in the sand like Daniel did. Are we too quick to just toss aside the cautions that the Spirit has given to our Mennonite churches through 
the generations in the past, lines in the sand that now we kind of feel aren't needed anymore. And I ask you to consider this example of Daniel before you throw away a line in the sand that's been in your life for many years. Fidelity doesn't take chances. Number five, fidelity in the little leads to fidelity in the big. This is the first chapter of Daniel. And if you would keep reading, where would you go? In two chapters, you would be on the plain of Dura with all the people standing around, well, all the leadership of Babylon. I don't even think it was all the people. It was just the, the high-ranking people of Babylon. And there's this 90-foot idol. Same men, except Daniel doesn't seem to have been there in that story. And... They're told to bow. So now we have another test of fidelity. Same list of excuses you could come up with as to why it might be okay to half bow or whatever. What did they do? You would see in that chapter three men standing tall. And then when they were questioned about it, an almost careless attitude to a king that could, could kill them. Oh, we're not even careful to answer. We, we're not going to bow. Again, that commitment, that absolute upfront commitment, and then coming to a situation and not having to make a decision. Oh, it's already made. We are who we are. We're not, we're not bowing to your idol, king. Three men who stood on both their faith in God and on their previous fidelity. And if we kept reading, 60 years later, we would find Daniel as an elderly man being told not to pray. Again, what excuses could you come up with? And again, the almost careless attitude of what does the lion's den have to do with whether I'm going to pray or not? Or even open my windows. I mean, I, the windows, isn't that the, the, the thing, you know? Why couldn't at least those have been closed? But I think, I think it comes back to that 90% Christian thing. Do you follow God at every fork? 50% of the forks? 90% of the forks in the road? Every fork except opening your windows to heaven? 99.9% of the forks? It's just the windows, God. If I could just shut those, I, that, I'm, I'm with you every step of the way but that. And I would suggest that each step in fidelity strengthened these men for the next steps. And so when you're tempted to sweep that little thing under the rug, remember that. Are you going to survive the big test? Are you going to make an excuse for that one as well? I have a, a uh, our deacon in our church, Luke, is a school bus driver, and he, he had a message of one time about sweeping the bus. And, you know, he had been, he was new at his job and, and uh, had been faithfully sweeping his bus, I think, every day. And... I think we'd been starting to get the impression that, that was not something that, I mean, it's what you're supposed to do, but not something that everybody was doing. And, uh, but he kind of kept at it, and uh, 
one, you know, wondered what the point was or whatever. But finally, at the end of the year, the boss pulled him aside and said, hey, we're, we're giving you this, I think it was a fairly large raise. And he said, uh, kind of, well, what, why? And he said, well, because you swept your bus. And he said, well, how, how did you even know? I mean, it's just my bus, you know. I, nobody was around. He's like, well, we have ways of knowing this stuff. And uh, he just said, you know, that littlest thing, can we be faithful in that to carry us to the next step? Fidelity in the little leads to fidelity in the big. And then the last point for today, and this one actually is from Titus chapter 2, if you want to turn to that. It is also in Daniel 1, but it's not directly stated. Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul again. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. And then here's the verse. Not purloining but showing all good fidelity for what reason? That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And I think in the NIV it uses the phrase, or it's one of the translations, uses the phrase that they might make attractive the doctrine of God. And I think we can relate to that. When we read this passage of Daniel, I don't know about you, but me, I, I say to myself, I want what Daniel had. I, that's me all the way in my, in my what I want to be at least, right? And if you look at what actually happened, it didn't happen in chapter 1, but it did in chapter 3 and chapter 6 with the idol that they had to bow down to and the prayer being thrown into the lion's den. In both cases, as I recall, the king said, I want what you guys have. You know, In fact, I want the whole country to, to have what you have, to serve the God of Daniel. Due to... Four men being willing to be 100% committed to Jesus Christ, an entire country was exposed to, the, to God, the true God. And that's what I'd like to leave with each one of us today. My challenge as we walk this very real earth, our citizenship is in heaven, as we heard in Sunday school, but our choices are very close to the ground here. And I just encourage each of you, life is, is just full of choices, full of opportunities to do what's right and what's wrong. And at every fork in the way, can we look to the God of Daniel and say, I'm committed. I'm 100%. I'm not 90. I'm not 80. I am 100%.
committed to Jesus Christ. I just want to, you know, give my encouragement to this congregation. I said already that I'm blessed by seeing a group of Christian people and carry on here in, in Minnesota, uh, southern Minnesota. The community needs your example of good fidelity so that they can find the doctrine of God attractive. And I encourage you in that, in that work today.